Hello, this is William Fink, and this is being pre-recorded for Christagenia Saturdays. This program will be published at Christagenia on Saturday, October 6th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Here we have our good friend Donald Fox and our End Times update for October of 2018. In, in undertaking this endeavor, we desire to put biblical end times prophecy into a proper historical and scriptural perspective because the nations of what was formerly known as Christendom, they are the true people of God. And those people masquerading as the people of God those people whom we know as Jews, they are indeed the collective biblical Satan. So once again, we have Donald Fox here. Hello, Don. How are you? Pretty good. How are you doing, Bill? Wonderful. Thanks for being here. My pleasure as always. And I thought um, with this installment, you know, eventually we're going to pick up kind of where we left off with uh, the African slave trade on the last update. But uh, before we uh, kind of continue on with that discussion, I thought um, it, may, it may be a good idea to uh, you know briefly talk about what's going on with this uh, Kavanaugh Supreme Court business. Um, and just to the lengths these guys are going to, to try to derail this Supreme Court nomination. Um, you know, when you know, I had never really heard of Brett Kavanaugh until you know a couple months ago, and all the all the information I had gotten on the guy was that basically he was your standard run of the mill, you know, neocon type judge. He worked you know in the Bush administration. He was there in the Bush, the W. Bush administration during 9/11, and he was pretty much just a regular old neocon type figure. And I didn't think this guy would be that controversial at all. And the American Bar Association has him rated, you know, as very qualified to sit on the Supreme Court. So I figured this would be basically a big nothing. But it has devolved into a circus. And at the center of the circus, of course, is our good friend, our good friends, the Jews. You know, the Diane Feinstein and Chuck Schumer and all the swamp creatures and the minions that work for them. And I, I just thought maybe we should spend a few minutes on exactly what's going on with this and maybe touch on, you know, Jewish psychology, I guess, for a, a lack of a better term for it. Um, because as I, I was talking to my one of my friends and I said, well... Brett Kavanaugh has run into the Jewish buzzsaw. And you may think, well, it's the Jewish buzzsaw. Well, you'll know it when you see it. It's kind of like shocking off from uh, desert, the Desert Storm War, you know. You'll know it when you see it. And, it, I mean, it's happened to me on, on, you know, of course, a much smaller scale and in, and in a much more, you know, or a less, much less public setting than what Brett Kavanaugh is going through. But... I first ran into it in the 9-11 context uh, when I thought, hey, you know, all this evidence is showing nuclear weapons were used and 
I was in an online debate, you know, or, you know, basically an email exchange. And then it didn't take but more than a couple of days and a few emails going around until my inbox just filled up with vitriol and angst and anger. And then it wasn't long after that that I had actual so-called 9-11 researchers calling my parents' house <laughs> and looking me up on LinkedIn. And they know where my brother works and they know where I worked and they know this and that. And the vitriol i'm like where is all this coming from well it's coming from the jews so what what exactly is going on here so well, well those people really i'm sorry those people really aren't 911 researchers at all they're just people that were put in place to uphold the particular party line on 911 yeah exactly yeah so when you start talking about you know and you can try this at home folks if if you got the guts uh, you know start a blog start talking about Jews and nukes in the 9-11 context and see how long it takes for you to run into the Jewish buzzsaw. It won't be very long. I can almost guarantee it. And if we just, so if we just take my little microcosm example and we apply this now to Brett Kavanaugh, well, look what's happened here. Uh, here's a story on RT.com, you know, Russia Today. Headline, Georgetown professor says Kavanaugh defenders quote, deserve miserable deaths, unquote, and should be castrated. And they reference a treat from, uh, 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 reference a tweet from Christine Fair, and they show the tweet, and Christine puts the parentheses around her own name, so she's Jewish. <laughs> she's so a self-admitted Jew, that's how they admit it now? <laughs> yep, she's a blue check with, with all the parentheses around her name, so... What more do you need to know there? So she's a Jewess. And what does her tweet say? It says, look at thus chorus of entitled men, entitled white men, justifying a serial rapist's arrogated entitlement. All of them deserve miserable deaths while feminists laugh as they take their last gasps. Bonus, we castrate their corpses and feed them to swine? Question mark. Yes. Maybe that's somebody on our side that's trolling the left, but <laughs> somehow I doubt it. it it's no, no, th no. This is this is an actual uh, Georgetown professor. She is a Jewess, and this is par for the course from her. Uh, one of her adversaries has said, "Oh yeah, I've gotten many tweets from." Oh, from that's the blue check on Twitter that you referenced. The blue check means yep. that their identity is really v verified. Yes. Yep. Okay. So the blue check brigade generally is the you know there's a few people on the so-called right that have blue check marks but usually it's the lefty establishment types yeah i tried to get a blue check mark when i had my twitter account and and i think i did or i was about to but they suspended my account yeah so it, it didn't last if if politically if you're to the right of mouth say tongue you will get suspended on the tweeter right there's no doubt about that. So, so where is this type of vitriol coming from? Um, it, it's, it's like, what the heck? And then, you know, there's, then I'm so, well, so I did a little more digging. And of course, I, one of my favorite Jewish websites is forward.com. And they, they have a story here. Uh, the headline is the Jewish case against Brett Kavanaugh. And it starts out. And this was by, um, written by Stash Coulter. 
July 13th, 2018. Um, Trump's presidency has lived up to his campaign rhetoric by implementing a racist, anti-immigrant, and anti-Muslim agenda. His disgraceful policy of separating immigrant families is just his most recent practice that echoes the worst moments in, of American history and actions of foreign dictators. In theory, Congress should be serving as a check on any would-be dictator in the White House. But given the Republican Party's total failure to stand up to Trump, in fact, their thorough embrace and enabling of authoritarian tendencies, that task has fallen solely to the courts over the course of this administration. Now, with Trump's nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, this last bastion of institutional accountability over the president is in even greater danger of slipping away. Jewish Americans must fervently oppose the confirmation of Judge Kavanaugh on issues of religious freedom, reproductive rights, voting rights, economic justice, and a host of other issues, Kavanaugh has shown fierce hostility to the priorities and values of an overwhelmingly majority of our community. But it's not just Kavanaugh's positions on these issues that are alarming. Putting Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court means losing a crucial check on the power of a president who has made white nationalism a central tenet of his worldview and policy agenda. Anyone in the Jewish community making the mistake of embracing or even tolerating a white nationalist administration is making a devil's bargain, and the price is either our safety or our conscience. A Supreme Court majority shaped by Donald Trump means the most vulnerable among us, immigrants, women, Muslim Americans, people of color, LGBTQ Americans, and yes, Jews too, will be at even greater risk of harm from Trump's agenda, untethered from true oversight by either by uh, by either of the other branches of government. Yeah, perhaps you know, the, uh, most egregious and dangerous of all, Kavanaugh has exposed a frightening belief that presidents are essentially above the law. Go where ahead. Did, where did Kavanaugh write that? <laughs> well, what they're 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 going to cite. Um, a 2009 Minnesota Law Review article, Kavanaugh expressed the belief that the president should be immune from civil suits, criminal investigations, or criminal prosecutions during their time in office. And in 1998, Kavanaugh wrote, Congress should give back to the president the full power to act when he believes that a particular independent counsel is out to get him, i.e. this Mueller business. Experts have rightly noted that Kavanaugh's views on this topic primarily for their relevance to the Mueller investigation, but they also have wide-reaching implications for positions Kavanaugh might take on the rest of the Trump agenda. Already, the Supreme Court has upheld Trump's Muslim ban, a disastrous, damaging policy born entirely out of the president's hatred of Muslims. With the Justice Kavanaugh on the court, what other outrageous Trump policies might and uh, might it turn a blind eye to uh, if a justice has already expressed a dangerously expansive view of executive power is confirmed to fill the current vacancy trump will likely feel even more emboldened to take his radical agenda and authoritarian tendencies further even if the court does rein in trump every now and then kavanaugh's confirmation would vastly expand the president's ability to actualize his radical worldview this is another step in the slow erosion 
of democratic institutions and norms. Jews know all too well about the horrific consequences when a leader with dictatorial aspirations is able to seize control over institutions designed to hold them accountable. Jews are always the experts, aren't they? Yes, we have seen this before. (laughs) (laughs) They are always the experts on, on oppression and suffering and pain and unjust governance. That, that gives them license to run everything. They're, they're always the experts. Yes. That, that same so, page, I, I wanted to note, that same page that you're reading this article from, what, where it trumpets um, LGBTQ, XYZ values and all, all of these, um, what, what most people would consider sexual impropriety. The same page that you're reading this, this article from in the foreword, has a link to an article which states that the Talmud calls for fasts to repent for sexual impropriety and says that it's time to bring them back. So it, it's that that's the dichotomy of the Jew. On, on one side they're supporting everything immoral, on, an, on the other side they're claiming or they're giving the appearance of upholding everything that's moral. You know if Jews had to repent for, sex, for sexual impropriety by fasting they would all starve to death. Yes, I mean, yeah, Jews are as degenerate and sexually improper as, as any humanoid could be. And so in my time in studying the Jews, okay, I, I ran into the Jewish buzzsaw, and I'm like, where the hell is this coming from? I mean, I just thought, you know, back in 2012, 2013, I had really no idea what they were what motivated them, what they actually believed in. Um, I always thought Jews were kind of forerunners to Christians and that they just somehow or other lost their way and didn't believe in Christ or whatever. But I figured, well, eventually they'll figure it out. But no, what what's really going on is, and, and this is the crux of the situation, is that Jews face kind of a dichotomy, okay? Their, their very existence, as, as you've noted before, they they do not proceed from God. Okay, they they are a corruption of God's creation. So Jews have kind of a, a dichotomy. They they either want God to accept them, you know, as they are being bastardized creations not formed by God, or if God won't accept them, then they have to kill him and his people. So there's kind of a so the the Jewish mindset is somewhat disjointed you know they have kind of a two-pronged approach they crave acceptance from God but yet they know they can't get it so then they have to kill him so this is where their where their psychology kind of stems from um, well and, I'm sorry I didn't want to derail your your, your presentation let's get back to Kavanaugh okay so what what the Jews see is is that Kavanaugh is a white male that's going to uphold the white social order, and Jews just can't abide by that. They must destroy the white social order, and that's that's what they're doing. All the policies that they that they advocate for uh, the 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 intended effect is to destroy white Christian civilization. So anything that would would serve to preserve white Christian civil, civilization must be attacked and destroyed. I was um, 
I listened to about five minutes the the other morning. I was in a hotel lobby waiting for my turn at the coffee pot. I listened to five minutes of CNN, and Donald Trump had just spoken in Johnson City, Tennessee, right near where we were, and he was mocking the the um, the people that were accusing Kavanaugh of of these forty, fifty year old improprieties, however old they are. And and um, the CNN reporter really made a, a, a strident endeavor to take the moral high ground and condemn Trump for even mentioning this on in his speech. It, it's they create these memes. The media creates these the, these memes. It, it uses perception rather than facts in order to create public opinion. Perception is formed by what the media presents in slogans and images much more quickly and more efficiently than what it presents in words. The words don't really matter. It's the slogans and images that matter. This is the value of memes. You know, a lot of people don't realize this. The media has been using memes ever since the first photograph appeared in a news article. Ever since print and photos started to come together in media, or, or in especially in electronic media. So the first news reports create these memes, and when the same one-sided paradigm is repeated repeatedly, that creates factoids. And they're almost always false. Factoids are almost always wrong. Memes are almost always false. And, and they're showered upon the public in order to create public opinion. And, and people actually think that they're smart when they remember all of the memes and all of the factoids. That, that's the power of fake news. And the, the shower of memes, the initial shower of memes sets public opinion. Once the public has an opinion, it, it's almost impossible to change it with long detailed explanations of truth because nobody wants to sit and read a thousand words and actually fact check no i mean and that's what jews are good at is it's called poisoning the well and they they're good at that and stirring things up um although this time around it, it seems to be their you know their mighty wurlitzer of the media it's having less effect than it did, you know, 10 years ago even. Um, there's a lot of people now that are standing up and going, oh, wait a minute, these attacks on Kavanaugh are just out of left field. They're completely baseless. Uh, this guy's been through the vetting process. I mean, he's, he's an appellate court judge now. He's been vetted many times. This is the, apparently the seventh FBI investigation into Brett Kavanaugh's background. Uh, I mean, the man's been a public, in public life, you know, for 20-plus years. Uh, he's had security clearances. And none of this stuff has ever come forward before. But now, all of a sudden, Dianne Feinstein and, and Chuck Schumer are shoving it out there front and center as a last gasp, desperate attempt to thwart Kavanaugh getting onto the, under the bench. Hasn't Feinstein been caught red-handed with dirty hands in this? Didn't she actually pay for the lawyer for one of these women making these accusations that that's what i heard in social media i don't know if it's true or not i, I don't know the details of, of brett kavanaugh i really don't care 
that because the Jewish progressive agenda is going to move forward one way or another un until it all comes to a head and explodes. Uh, yeah, apparently what was going on was that uh, Feinstein had the this Christine Ford allegation thing under wraps for maybe over a month or so, and then they kind of sprung it as an October surprise to try to... Uh, String this out. I, I think what their real goal was was to string it out past the midterms. Midterms, midterm yeah. elections. Yeah, right. the midterm elections. Yeah. So, uh, the the latest word I had was there was going to be a vote Friday on this. That's the last story I saw this morning. Well, that's interesting, and and that's the state that we're in. That this progressive agenda, even a, somebody that we think is harmless, like Kavanaugh, right? He's a standard neocon. Um, prep boy, university prep boy, born with a silver spoon in his mouth. It, it's, to me, it's, um, to, he, he is somebody who is establishment all the way, right? It, it's, he's not really going to change anything. None of those neocons change anything. They all want that they're new conservatives, right? There is it fervent, um, Israeli Zionists, pro-Israeli Zionists are what they really are. But these progressive liberals, just any and any little um, bump in the road on on the path to their their perverted utopia, and and they're up in arms and 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 raging against that bump in the road. They they don't want any that they, they want a smooth and easy way, right? I mean, they want to really grease up the path to hell. Yeah, it's, it seems like now, um, it is, as we get further along the path on this thing, the, the battle lines are being drawn more sharply than they were. I mean, there's a different politics now than there was five years ago. Uh, there's no middle ground anymore. You're either on one side or the other. And right, the center has disappeared. Yep, the center has disappeared now. There's no none of this go-along-to-get-along stuff that we used to see you know, 20 years ago, where these guys all they they would have their campaign rhetoric, but then once they got in there, all of them were amenable to doing deals so they could get reelected and and keep, uh, you know, keep their snout in the trough. Um, now, I mean, even Lindsey Graham stood up this week and uh, he blasted this sham uh, against Kavanaugh, and he was actually he was actually pretty much foaming at the mouth, uh, yelling at Democrats and admonishing them, you guys want this seat? Boy, I hope you never get it. And we've never seen any kind of spine out of Lindsey Graham. I mean, basically most the consensus on him was that he was some sort of a closeted homosexual rhino, you know, Republican in name only. And, you know, basically would, was a John McCain type Republican. But somebody, you know, one theory is that, well, McCain's dead now. Maybe Lindsay's gotten out from under that that shadow. And, you know, well, or maybe he's just starting to see the fact now that uh, there is no middle ground. There is no negotiating with these people. You either support the, you either are working to preserve civilization or you're working to destroy it. It's one or the other. 
Well, well, right, but it's good that people are being forced from the middle to one side or the other. That's the sheep and the goats, as far as I'm yes, concerned. It, it, yeah, exactly. That That's my point as well. I'm, I'm glad, you know, enough screwing around. Um, well, that brings us to our subject, and, and we often mention the Revelation chapter 20 camp of the saints scenario on these programs, probably because it is the signal end times prophecy which describes what is happening to us today. Satan, the international Jew, has gathered all of the world's heathen nations against the children of Israel, and all of our white countries are being overrun with beasts. This is clearly where we are now. However, there are other biblical prophecies which help to edify and add further details to that picture. Now, now, most recently here, we discussed Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, at least in part, and how it is prophesied there that alien hordes would come upon the mountains of Israel, representing the nations of Christendom, and devour and take a spoil of everything that they could lay their hands upon. Now, we can see this happening at the same time that we are surrounded by these same alien hordes. They are taking loot and pillage of our money, our women, even our boys, and even our possessions. And they usually do it with government collusion. And speaking about government collusion, um, just the other day, the FBI, I believe, or, or federal prosecutors, one or the other, announced and indictments against one of the some of the members of one of the groups the right-wing alt-right type groups from California that took part in the Unite the Right rallies at Charlottesville Virginia last year and a lot of people on the right on the hard right are interpreting that to mean that the government is siding with the progressives so that's probably another story for another time in relation to these end-time prophecies in Revelation chapter 20 and in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, there is another similar prophecy in Joel, which is illustrative of Donald Fox's subject this evening. From Joel chapter 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel the son of Pethuel, Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Had this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? In other words, Joel saying, you're not going to believe what's going on or what's about to happen. Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation, as a warning, so that we learn to repent from our sin, but we haven't learned. That which the pommel worm has left, has the locust eaten, and that which the locust has left has the cankerworm eaten. And that which the cankerworm has left has the caterpillar eaten. Awake, 
ye drunkards, these leaders, these community leaders, civic leaders, political leaders, they're all drunk. They're partying off the system. They're partying along with the whore and mystery Babylon, right? And, and they're just going along with the program. But it's going to come to an end. Awake, ye drunkards, and weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come upon thy land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the cheek teeth of a great lion. He has laid my vine waste, the vine being the actual race of people in the land, and barked my fig tree, peeled all the bark off. In other words, stripped it bare. He has made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white, Lament like a virgin, girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. Meaning that you're about to be cut off from your nation. It's dead, so you better lament. So here we have a nation or a people where it says, For a nation is come upon my land. And the people of that nation are likened to caterpillars. Pommel worms, canker worms, and locusts. Joel was writing as the Assyrians and their allies were invading ancient Israel. However, it could be effectively argued that there are two aspects to most of these Old Testament prophecies, as they frequently have an aspect which could not have been fulfilled in antiquity, and whereby they must also refer to the so-called time of the end, the end times, often called in scripture the day of the wrath of Yahweh God. A similar scenario to Joel is seen in Obadiah verses 15 and 16, a prophecy which is certainly not yet fulfilled, where it says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. They shall drink from the cup of the wrath of Yahweh. The heathen, or rather the non-Israel nations, the non-Christian nations, those who are not a part of God's holy mountain, which is an allegory for the people of Israel, are to be found drinking upon that holy mountain. And this certainly symbolizes the fact that all of these alien hordes, which are here among us, and which are filling themselves of our substance, they will be able to do this for a fixed period of time. And then the time will come that they shall all be destroyed, so that they shall be as though they had not been. They shall swallow down the cup of Yahweh's wrath. This evening, Donald Fox is here with us once again, and we are going to discuss, in part, how this scenario has been fulfilled and is ongoing in the reality of our times. Yes. Um, okay. So, like, yeah, as I had alluded to earlier on, on the on the last installment, we had talked about how the how the slave trade was kind of fulfilling these prophecies, and we, we were talking about Ezekiel thirty eight and thirty nine. But it also applies to Joel and Revelation and Obadiah, 
any number of these Old Testament prophecies, and even in the New Testament, um, with the the parable of the the sheep and the goats and the wheat and the tares. Um, so Ezekiel had talked about God would put hooks in their jaws and bring them forth. And to me, I, I saw that as uh, being very indicative of what was going on with the African slave trade, where these these black Africans were rounded up, put onto Jewish ships, and brought over here. Well, well I think that's a good allegory. That's, that's a good comparison, and I believe it's valid to, to indicate to us that these people are coming here whether they want to or not, and whether we want them here or not, they're coming. And and now we're flooded with them, but I don't think the flood is over with. No, it, 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 I mean, I've seen some signs of it of, of abating a little bit, but in, in any case, I mean, we can be sure that, yeah, these the, the blacks made no effort on their own to come here. They, they had no wherewithal to do it. They couldn't build a ship or sail it across the ocean. I mean... Well, they certainly wouldn't save their money over in Africa for plane fare for their family and just get a flight or, or a berth on no. a ship. No, uh, they, they were brought here. Basically. I don't know if any black yeah. has done that in history. So they, they were brought here against their will, and they were brought here in the service of Satan to, to battle God's people, the camp of the saints, a.k.a. You know, true Israel, um, and that, that would be us. And so, as we talked about in the last the last installment, we we had covered how Jewish indeed the slave trade was, and what kind of numbers were being brought over. Okay, so large numbers of Africans were brought here by Jews to be slaves, and Jews owned a lot of slaves. Um, they in in the southern United States and even in South America, the Bahamas, Haiti. These Africans were were brought everywhere, and then we had talked about you know how big the numbers were then. Well, okay, so let's let's pick up the story, you know, after the Civil War, and towards the the turn of the of the uh, end of the nineteenth century. Um, so I found an article here. It's on the Washington Post. Um, uh, this is written by Emily Badger, uh, March seventeenth, twenty sixteen. Uh, the article is entitled, White Flight Began a Lot Earlier Than We Think. Uh, white Flight is usually described as a post-World War II phenomenon, one that required highways and suburbs and big lawns to flee to. Uh, but whites in northern cities really began resorting themselves, specifically away from blacks, in the first decades of the 20th century, and what happened then uh, remains relevant to American cities that are still racially divided today. Uh, if you want to understand the origins of segregation in the, in the United States, you have to look at this period between 1900 and 1930, says Allison Scherzer, and she's probably a Jewess. Oh, I'm sure. An economist at the University of Pittsburgh who has studied detailed digitized census forms from that era with Pittsburgh colleague Randall P. Walsh. And he sounds like uh, he's probably white. Um, in their new research, they studied how the arrival of blacks in 10 northern cities at the time influenced white behavior. Over the course of the first three decades after the turn of the century, coinciding with the start of the great migration of blacks out of the south, this pattern accelerated. As blacks arrived in northern neighborhoods, more whites left. 
By the 1920s, there were more than three white departures for every black arrival. Scherzer and Walsh, who tried to account for other reasons why neighborhood populations shifted, believed this was casual. Whites left the neighborhood as a result of blacks arriving, Scherzer said, not for other reasons, you know, i.e. better schools or, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, right. So I mean, no, no, when I was a child in the 60s and 70s, nobody wanted a black in their neighborhood. Nobody no. did. And, and no, nobody, not even walking through the neighborhood. It, it was strange. Yeah. So, and then the, 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 the of course, yeah, and, and the story goes on to say that uh, the suburbs we know today effectively didn't exist at the time. So whites were leaving these neighborhoods for other neighborhoods in the city. This that makes this earlier form of white flight even more striking. Their new homes didn't necessarily have lower taxes or better school districts, factors that complicated the motivations of later generations of whites. The accumulation of all of these individual decisions is an important part of explaining why segregation took root in places like Baltimore, Philadelphia, and Chicago, as this graph from the paper illustrates. The dissimilarity between and isolation indexes are two tools researchers use to measure segregation. One captures the degree to which blacks and whites would need to move around a city to turn uh, homogeneous neighborhoods into diverse ones, and the other captures how isolated blacks are from whites in the neighborhoods where they live. And there's a graph here, um, and it shows around kind of a peak of around 1970 or 80 of or 90 of, of isolation and uh, dissimilarity. Um, the argument Scherzer and Walsh make is novel, not just because it turns our attention to an earlier period in American history at a time when, from which digitized census, census data only recently became available, the forces they're pointing to are not the usual culprits. The narrative about the emergence of segregation in the U.S. has been all about these discriminatory institutions, Scherzer said. Things like violence, firebombing, throwing bricks through people's windows, racially restrictive covenants, barriers that kept blacks out. Um, it's widely documented that banks in this area refused to loan to redline blacks, that real estate agents steered, steered them away from white neighborhoods, that legal agreements ensured all white neighborhoods stayed that way. Scherzer and Walsh are pointing to another set of factors, not the policies of institutions, but the behavior of individuals. We argue that if you took the current legal and institutional environment and plucked it on the early 20th century, Scherzer says, we would still have uh, very segregated cities because of a certain number of whites that were unwilling to live with blacks. Even if the Fair Housing Act had existed back then, if restricted covenants were illegal in, the, in 1920s America, we'd have gotten segregated cities anyway because of the behavior that's beyond the reach of regulation. You can create a lot of segregation, this re research says, without having any discriminatory institutions. Uncoordinated market choices created. And this, is, and, and this part's that's particularly relevant today. All of the historic institutional barriers have largely, but not entirely, been eliminated. But we know from research on, on the behavior of people searching for homes that racial preferences still shape where people choose to live today. 
this is how you get a city like Ferguson, Scherzer says, with its predominantly white police force and predominantly black population. That odd pattern reflects more recent waves of white flight out of that struggling St. Louis suburb. When white homeowners think about how their choices shape the racial compositions of neighborhoods, they say, I would never support discrimination in mortgage lending. I'd never support anything like redlining or restrictive covenants. I would never participate in something like that, Scherzer says. But the choices of white homeowners to move to neighborhoods that are almost exclusively white, this is a quantitatively important mechanism that keeps cities segregated. The choices whites make today, though, are influenced by a century of segregation in the way that has conflated race with poverty, crime, and school equality. And school quality. That makes this challenge a lot harder, a lot harder to resolve than if we had tried a century ago. Well, well, when I was a child, the lower, um, the, the southern east, not even a quarter, portion of Jersey City, um, the, the, the eastern, the southeastern portion of the Bergen-Lafayette section of the city was where all of the, all the blacks lived. They all lived there. All the blacks in the city that I ever saw lived in that one, um, maybe half square mile section, square mile section. And they spread out from Ocean Avenue down to Monticello Avenue, down to Bergen Avenue, by the 70s, they had taken over Bergen Avenue, and, and they were spreading west down to Kennedy Boulevard, and, and ultimately down to Westside Avenue. I mean, they were like a cancer. It was like a tumor. And, and it sends out these, the, these um, shoots off into various other parts of the city, and, and when a few blacks move into any particular block, all the whites leave, because nobody wants to live with them. But even the blacks don't want to live with the blacks. They prefer to live with whites. But yeah, I mean, I, I used to watch, you know, I used to watch a lot of YouTube clips. And um, Tommy Sotomayor is one guy I would watch once in a while a couple of years ago. And David Duke's I was reading the comments on one of his videos. That, that's and, David uh, Duke's pet Negro. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And, and one of the comments in there was uh, one uh, one black guy said, he would rather live in a KKK neighborhood than in the neighborhood he grew up in. <laughs> well, well, it's true because we don't. What well, we, you know, how many times do you see a white guy with a, a gun in a Negro's back and taking his wallet? It it just hardly ever happens. It, if it really happens at all, it it's and and the blacks rob each other all the time. That there was speaking about Ferguson. I saw a video clip just a few a, a few weeks ago of black youths, I'll call them blacks here and not niggers, black youths in a gas station in, I think it was East St. Louis, with, with um, semi-automatic rifles just shooting them off in the air for the hell of it. And, and they were caught on the gas station security camera, and so this wasn't even anybody's cell phone that, that filmed them, that they were just doing it for, for kicks in, in the middle of the night. Uh, I mean, and and they're carrying these M15s or AR15s around in their in their back seats of their vehicles. They have a term for it. I forget the term, but they're just out having a good time for the evening with AR15s popping them off up in the air in the middle of the night, just for the hell of it. Just the way white yeah, kids I mean, used it, to play with not, firecrackers. It, it, 
yeah, it's not gun laws or it's not the Second Amendment that's causing all these these gun problems. It's it's a racial problem. It's the blacks that are causing the problems. Um, Absolutely. So, as blacks move into a neighborhood, whites move out, and then the collapse starts to set in. Now, as we we've, we've talked about before. You know, the average IQ of American blacks is quoted at is, is 85, and a lot of us think that number is probably too high. It's more probably in the mid to upper 70s, you know, would probably be more my guess. Um, but in, in any event, it's below the, the IQ that you need to maintain civilization. Um, as, as we talked about before, that number seems to be IQ 98. Uh, once you go below 98, then modern civilization starts to slip away. So the Washington Post article, th- their liberal Jewish bent on this is, well, whites are bad because they just don't want to live with blacks. No, what what they were doing was they were trying to preserve their civilization, and they know that blacks are not compatible with their civilization. So you can either have civilization or you can have blacks. You can't have both. So if you're trying to maintain a functioning city and a functioning economy, you just you have to exclude blacks. The the um there was a recent headline that in Soweto in South Africa, the people in in the town who were all black, the people of the city who were just about all black, owed four billion African rand in electric utility bill arrears they don't pay their electric bills that they don't I remember Jersey City when the blacks reached Bergen Avenue ten years later half the buildings were boarded up but because they don't pay rent they don't pay rent they don't pay their electric bills that they, they, they get their foothold they, they move into an apartment and and they think that it should be free after that well see that's the thing they, they don't actually produce anything and that's why the Kangs in Africa sold them out to the Jews and the Europeans was because there was they had nothing to trade with, with Europe that was any good that, that anybody would want. The only thing they could serve up was their own people to serve as cheap labor. And ultimately, there I mean, there is no such thing as cheap labor. Um, the cost of having black labor in your community uh, is is far higher than any benefit you'll get from them producing you know low wage labor labor well well that's actually a result of corporatism it, it's yeah. the corporations that support the liberal agenda to provide taxpayer based um, housing and health care and and all of these other services right so that the general tax taxpayer base is responsible for caring for these Negroes and then the corporation can get away with paying the Negroes a, a minimum wage a minimal wage and and not paying them any benefits because the benefits are provided by all the other taxpayers yeah they yeah they, they uh, outsource the costs of the cheap labor right and and they then the that people that, in the community Right, and then the people that end up shouldering most of the cost are, are the the um, the small businesses owned by the middle class. 
that that those people that they generate the most income and and the most revenue in in the society is the 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 middle class the business owners and and small business owners and professional tradespeople and and so they foot the bill that the corporation should be paying so yeah. li- liberalism um, it, it, and corporatism work hand in hand to create a marxist society so when and this is something that we, we've touched on before is okay so when did when did blacks start really gaining a foothold in conventional regular society um, so in the in the 1910s and 20s okay whites were moving away from them uh, we had Jim Crow laws in effect uh, we had separate but equal schools um, we tried to stay away from them um, when the the line I can see is was Lyndon Johnson, um, you know, the first with the uh, um, with his immigration policy, the 1965 immigration, uh, the Naturalization Act, and then you had had the Fair Housing Act, and that was when they, they said, hey, we got to get rid of institutionalized discrimination against blacks. And I've got a clip there of, of LBJ um, bringing that into effect, if you wanted to, to play that. Yes, let's do that. Even while President Johnson talked to Chancellor Klaus about America's responsibility in a time of crisis and challenge, word came from Capitol Hill that Congress had passed and sent to the White House the Civil Rights Act of 1968. Included in the measure was a landmark open housing bill, which, when fully effective, would forbid discrimination in approximately 80% of all housing offered for rent or for sale in the United States. I do not exaggerate when I say that the proudest moments of my presidency have been times such as this. When I have signed into law the promises of a century. I shall never forget that it is more than a hundred years ago when Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. But it was a proclamation. It was not a fact. And in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, we affirm through law that men equal under God are also equal when they seek a job, when they go to get a meal in a restaurant, or when they seek lodging for the night in any state in the Union. And now the Negro families no longer suffer the humiliation of being turned away because of their race. In the Civil Rights Act of 1965, we affirm through law for every citizen in this land the most basic right of democracy, the right of a citizen to vote in an election in his country. In the five states where the act had its greater impact, 
Negro voter registration has already more than doubled. Now with this bill, the voice of justice speaks again. It proclaims that fair housing for all, all human beings who live in this country is now a part of the American way of life. We all know that the roots of injustice run deep, but violence cannot redress a solitary wrong or remedy a single unfairness. And we just must put our shoulders together and put a stop to both. The time is here. Action must be now. So Lyndon Johnson was one of the first great champions of the Negro beast in the modern era. Yes, and you know, and I've done a lot of work on the JFK thing, and uh, I'm no longer on the, the uh, new JFK show due to you know conflicts of scheduling and whatnot. I just can't do a show every week anymore, uh, and keep a roof over my head. So, uh, but one thing I, I, I've talked about before is that the, the Kennedy assassination, and, and you'll find plenty of Jews that were involved in it, was part of the overall larger Jewish race war against white Christian civilization. John Kennedy was removed so that they could put the Jew Lyndon Johnson in there to speed up the destruction of the United States of America. And the first thing he did was, um, you know, a lot of JFK people want to talk about the CIA and the Vietnam War and all that, and those are all, you know, interesting things to look at, but the big picture is what Lyndon Johnson did to the United States, not what he did to Vietnam. And what he did to the United States was um, he opened the borders with the 1965 Immigration Act and he flooded white America with, with, with apes with the Fair Housing Act. Well, well right. The war, on com the war on communism was a charade so that communism could be implemented here. Yes. Uh, upon further review, Senator Joe McCarthy was probably on to something. Um, so that, that brings me to, uh, one of our, one of our cities that, that's in a lot of trouble right now. Um, and that's Baltimore. Um, it, it may be the next one to collapse. I mean, the national pundits haven't come out and said that Detroit has collapsed, but it's for all intents and purposes collapsed. Detroit. Um, when, when I was still in prison 10 years ago, I, I was in prison in, um, in northern Ohio, right? So I got a lot of news about Detroit. And there were actually Kia dealers giving away two-for-one if you would pay for a Kia up, up in that area when Kia first, you know, started selling cars here. And there were houses in Detroit being sold for a dollar. Mansions. Oh, old, um, you know, industrial age mansions were being sold for a dollar if people would move into them. And of course, yeah, people couldn't move into them because the plumbing was stolen, the copper was stolen, the aluminum siding was stolen. Yeah, you would a you would have to rebuild the house basically. All all that was left of it was you know some two by fours and some some sticks, 
And then, and then once you got it rebuilt, you'd have to defend it. Right. So, <laughs> so in order to pay for the renovations, you have to have a job. So you're going to probably have to leave the house at some point. And by the time you do and you get back, there won't be much of it left. No, your plumbing will be stolen again. <laughs> yeah, your all the copper will be will have been stripped out. The wiring, the the plumbing, all of it gone. Well, they so, were actually doing that in in Cleveland in Youngstown. It had, it was already done to Detroit, right? This is 2008. Um, Detroit was already stripped bare and naked, and and that which the caterpillar ate, the pommel worm was looting. That that's I, I like to think that of that as Hispanics and blacks and Chinese and. Arabs <laughs> and after the um the the blacks and and the Hispanics denude an urban center, then the Chinese and the Arabs move in 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 large numbers and try to buy up the neighborhoods and and they can protect them because that they just run crime rings they don't really work they run businesses as fronts for their criminal operations. Blacks are too dumb really to run a. F- a business operation like that so they're just basically street thugs and um so that, that's really what you see in baltimore now um i found a story on uh, one of our favorite websites here slate.com hmm. um, <laughs> uh, this is from april 29th 2015 uh by jamel Bowie, and he is black um the the title of the, of the post here is The Deep, Troubling Roots of Baltimore's Decline. If we want to save Charm City, we must begin by reversing 100 years of segregation. So in the last article, we talked about how whites were, were fleeing blacks basically as soon as they showed up in, in, the, in town. Baltimore being no exception. Um, and Okay, so the article starts out, Baltimore... Uh, we want people to register to vote because that's where the change is made, said State Senator, Senator uh, Catherine Pugh, and she's black. Standing near the smoldering remains of the CVS on North Avenue and handing voter registration forms to anyone who caught her eye. The street was thick with people, children on a day off from school, adults from the neighborhood, a few street musicians, an incense-waving activists, and at least two men with bullhorns and a gaggle of reporters. And it was a good day for any politician to show her face and shake a few hands. After handing a form to a young man and giving him a pen to fill it out, she turned back to finish her pitch uh, for why this, more than ever, was the time for traditional political action. Uh, Quote, I am a senator. I was a, a city council member. I know that by being there, it does make a difference. And if you don't vote, it doesn't happen. Um. Pugh is a politician, and politicians, if they do anything, support the system they serve. But you can forgive the re- residents of West Baltimore and East Baltimore, both united by huge blocks of long vacant homes and long boarded businesses, if they're cynical about civic engagement. Since the Civil Rights Movement, but especially since the 1968 riots, sparked by Martin Luther King's assassination after 15 years of nonviolent protest. Baltimore has been a largely black city. This is mostly a function of population decline stemming from the riots. From 1970 to 2000, the city's population fell by nearly one third, um, from 906,000 to 651,000. 
At the same time, the number of black residents rose. In 1950, just 24% of Baltimoreans were black. By 1980, it was 54%. And by 2000, it was 65%. Now, Baltimore is a city of 620,000, and the large majority, 63.7, are black. And unlike Ferguson, where demographic strength lagged political representation, Baltimore's black residents have turned their presence into black mayors, black city councils, and black representatives to Annapolis, which is the capital of Maryland. Uh, far from a rarity, black leadership in Baltimore is a given that extends to the police. Throughout the 1980s, the city worked to, to bring black Americans onto the force and promote them up through the ranks. As writer uh, Stacia Brown notes for the New Republic, the city believed that the presence of black people in politics and law enforcement could foster a greater trust and more open communication between black citizens and their government. This was a vital and admirable contribution to the city, city's civic life, and yet the basic position of Baltimore's low-income blacks didn't change. In the Sandtown, Winchester neighborhood where Freddie Gray lived before he died in police custody on April 12th, one half of the residents are unemployed and one third of the homes are vacant. 60% of residents have less than a high school diploma and the violent crime rate is among the highest in Baltimore. Um, you can paint a similar picture for the neighborhoods and the housing projects on the east side of the city as well. If you are poor and black in Charm City, your life, or at least your opportunity to have a better life, looks bleak. But then this is by design. In the early 20th century, as, it, as, many Americans, as in many American cities, Baltimore civic leaders endorsed broad plans to protect white neighborhoods from black newcomers. The city was flushed with waves of immigration from abroad as well as the South, and more affluent blacks were leaving the older, poorer neighborhoods to move to predominantly white areas removed from the poverty and joblessness of the crowded slums. In short order, politicians and progressive reformers, motivated by benevolence, politics, and an en vogue scientific racism, endorsed segregation plans and racial covenants meant to condone, meant to cordon blacks, as well as Italian and Eastern European immigrants, onto small parts of land in the inner city. By the 1930s, black Americans had grown to 20% of Baltimore's population, but were confined to 2% of the city's land mass. And there was a desperate need for new housing, as both formal and informal segregation kept blacks from expanding neighborhoods or moving into white areas. Uh, the same was increasingly less true of European immigrants who, with upward mobility, could integrate into mainstream society. In the 1940s, local, state, and federal leaders pushed the public housing, uh, pushed public housing to relieve the crisis, but it was segregated. Blacks would receive new housing in their neighborhoods and working-class whites, in turn, would receive new homes in their own. Five of six public housing projects, McCullough, Poe, Gilmore, Somerset, and Douglas, would be placed in the most dense black neighborhoods of East and West Baltimore. And while the war boom would deliver partial prosperity, many of these areas still lack stable, a stable employment base, even as they continue to grow with rapid influxes of new black residents. So in 1950, complaints from white residents over plans to expand public housing, and the mayor and the city council agreed to limit future building to existing slum sites where the majority of blacks lived. 
And as they had done for the past four decades, white leaders prepared to limit black migration in the city as much as possible. But there was still a housing problem. Blacks were still moving to Baltimore and there weren't enough units for the new residents. Both dynamics working together led to a decade-long project of urban renewal as the city used federal funds for slum removal to make way for new high-rise public projects. Renewal displaced 25,000 Baltimoreans, almost all of them black, and the new high-rise rises were built with segregation in mind. By the time the construction was finished, the new projects had bolstered and entrenched the segregation of the past. The black areas of 1964 and of the 1968 riots are almost identical to the black areas of 50 years prior. There is much, much more to the story. The key part, however, is the remarkable stability of Baltimore's segregation over time. By and large, the Negro slums of the 1910s are the depressed projects and vacant blocks of the 2010s. And the same pressures of crime and social dislocation continue to press on the modern-day residents of the inner city. If the goal of early segregationist policies was to concentrate black Baltimoreans in a single location, separated from opportunity, then it worked. More importantly, it's never been unraveled, and there's never been a full effort to undo and compensate for the policies of the past. Indeed, the two decades of drug and crime that marred Baltimore in the 80s and 90s help entrench the harm and worsen the scars of the city's history. Uh, so he's just he goes on to say that Baltimore is stuck and that uh, the segregationist policies are what is led to the state that Baltimore is in. Well, well, of course, that's a poor excuse. Niggers led to the state that Baltimore's in. Yet, you know, when these cities were loaded up with Irishmen, in, in after the um, mid 1800s, they weren't falling apart. They they were vibrant um, centers of of progress and culture. That they they weren't you, you know the Italians, the Irish, the Poles that all came over here from Europe in the late 1800s did not destroy the cities that they moved into. When when I was a kid, the more blacks we had, the more destroyed the city was. It, it was absolutely destroyed everywhere. Jersey City, this is interesting. First, first this Fair Housing Act, you, you know, this was was passed right on the, at the same time the king was assassinated, and that's probably why it was passed, right? Because of the king assassination. But when I was a kid, Jersey City had built, um, and, and even before that, Jersey City had built all these projects of huge apartment buildings and they all kind of look the same the same basic square block design but but they were like some of them were 20 stories high and Newark also and and that they each one had hundreds of apartments in it and and they were like eight or ten buildings in each complex <clears throat> Jersey City had six or eight of these complexes sprinkled throughout the city and what's interesting is how they were funded after the Fair Housing Act, the state passed laws requiring each town or municipality to have so much of its housing as low-income housing. And these towns, these rich towns that the Jews fled to out, out in the suburbs with, with the old English money and, and, and the, the new Jewish money, that these towns in suburbia, 
did not want um, public housing or, or low-income housing in their communities, these rich people. So they paid Jersey City and they paid Newark to have to build their low-income housing. In other words, if you were required by law to have 2% or 5%, whatever it was, of your housing in your town as low-income housing, if that equaled out, say, 300 units, then you would pay Jersey City to build 300 units and keep the blacks there. That's how they did it. Now, now that system stayed in place, as far as I know, until the 1990s that system stayed in place and when that system was finally dismantled in the courts that's when the 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 suburbs and the, the wealthier towns were forced to build their own low-income housing and and the the Negroes started to stream out of the cities and into the suburbs in the 1990s but yeah, and then so that and now you know, the next step is whites are moving from suburbs now, and yeah, right. It, You're moving to entire different states and everything. It's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, well, okay. So, to look at this thing as in kind of a microcosm. So, these people are being brought here against their will um, by God and you know by Satan ultimately, and uh, we, and until the time comes we're stuck with them so we can't you know you can't have any kind of an armed revolt against this stuff you have to put up with it so what's really what's a guy to do you know basically all you can do is put your house up for sale get what you can for it and move right and and that's what millions of people have done across the country trying yep. to move to a better white state or a better white enclave yeah a, a lot of people now are just moving to a different state you know the, the suburb you know, was, was a great idea in the 70s and 80s but that's not holding up anymore so now you really need to get to you know a, a new state you need to go to New Hampshire Vermont Idaho Montana you know you gotta you gotta find a white state yeah when I was a child in first second third fourth grades every summer you know, when you went back to school in September, you'd notice a new bunch of your friends was gone. They were gone. That, that Their families fled to the suburbs. Yeah, before I was born, my, my dad fled uh, uh, Minneapolis for the, the suburbs. Uh, um, and that's, we, you know, we grew up in a white suburb, you know, 98% white back in the 70s and 80s. Um, it's not like that anymore. But Dad would rather drive a half hour into work every day, even though he didn't make much money, uh, to not send us to school with the apes. Right. In, in, in New Jersey, the segregation, I, I was fortunately segregated in school simply because my parents, who came from a mixed Catholic and, and Protestant background, decided to send us to Catholic school. We, we went to Catholic school that, that there were no Catholic Negroes. None. So we had um, some Sicilian kids, right? And, and that was about it. 
the school was was practically all white. If you went to a public school, you were just screwed. I, I mean, you were you couldn't get away from them. That that the public schools were majority Negro, all of them. I don't remember a white one. Most of the white kids that had parents that cared went to Catholic schools, or moved out of yeah. town. Yeah, you you basically can't learn anything in a in a room full of uh, you know elementary school blacks. There's no way to you, you can do lesson plans and all. I mean, they're just they can't even sit at their desk. They can't read. They can't write. You know, I saw a story a couple of years ago, and it's the headline was that fifty percent, over fifty percent of Detroit is functionally illiterate. And, yeah, right. They are illiterate. That they don't value education. They see education as a white man's thing. They really do, and and fortunately, and and they they deride other blacks who read books or become literate as Uncle Tom's. Well, and, and that and the other part of the equation is they're not they're their mental faculties aren't really conducive to reading and writing. No black nation ever had a, a written or you know written language before they encountered white people. Left to their own devices, they wouldn't read and write. That reading and writing is is a white construct. Going back so to, to South, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's you're kind of you're kind of going against their nature to to make them read and write. It's right. just, it's an uphill battle. Absolutely, they have no use to. They don't want to engage in any activity that includes reading and writing. That they just rather play basketball and and rob stores. They're not built to read and write. That's not their strong suit. And so, it, so yeah, basically, no, they're literate. not compatible with our civilization. They're there's on high unemployment because they're not their 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 IQ isn't high enough to do most jobs in a modern white economy. It just isn't. They're not they can't produce at the same level as a white person can. Africa never had a literate society that generated itself. The the African languages were alphabetized by these dumbass Christian missionaries from Europe and and so were the Indians that they developed alphabets for them so that they could write in their own language and try to teach them how to write in their own language and of course that hasn't worked out too well either so so what happens when you take a square peg and try to jam it into a round hole um, you're gonna get some angst and unrest and when you've got all these poor people stuck in these slums and yet they know that you know a few miles away there's a bunch of rich white people that causes a lot of consternation and anger you know if if all the black people were out in the jungle by themselves they wouldn't really know much of any other life they wouldn't be mad about their circumstances but because they've been cordoned off into slum apartments and and stuff like that um that leads to a lot of unrest and violence. And so so the, the Negroes are bought off constantly with EBT cards and cheap car loans. Yeah, see, okay, yeah, so the, the white strategy had been kind of twofold. A, move if you can, um, and if you can't, pay them off so that they don't riot. 
or in, in your case in New Jersey, they're pay some other city to, to house them. You know, just get the checkbook out and keep them out of my yard. You know, right. Was the strategy. So what's left now in Baltimore, now most of the white people have left. Uh, there's not very many left there. And uh, it's a very violent city. Um, and here's a story I saw um, October 1st, uh, 2018 on WBAL.com. Uh, it says, after spike in violence, Baltimore police cancel leave and deploy officers to high crime areas. And um, it says, following a bloody week, Baltimore police are canceling leave and strategically sending extra officers to certain locations. Uh, we have made some significant changes to how we deploy the next couple of days, Interim Commissioner Gary Tuggle said. Um, and he's a, he's a black police chief. Um, Hundreds of officers, detectives, sergeants, and lieutenants will be out in parts of the city with high historical crime rates in areas they believe are prone to potential acts of retribution. Every district will see uh, increased presence, Tuggle said. So, yeah, I've got another clip there. Um, uh, if you want to play that one, it's uh, um, leave canceled for uh, BPD officers after influx of homicides. Yeah, they can't take any time. <laughs> like, they're preventing yeah. any homicides anyway, right? They're yeah. just cleaning up the mess. They supervise the cleanup. That's all they really do. Basically, they, they don't solve these crimes. Well, this means that they need as many hands on deck as possible. And even with today's increase, Interim Police Commissioner Gary Tuggle says they simply do not have enough boots on the ground. The month of September saw 37 homicides in Baltimore City. Eight of them committed from Friday to Sunday. The city started the first day of October with two homicides, one in the Southwest District, another in Northwest. Police say the majority of those have been targeted or retaliatory. Interim Police Commissioner Gary Tuggle has suspended all leave for the next three days. Right now, there are 527 officers and detectives on the street. That includes an additional 128 members of the BPD who were pulled from administration and put into uniform for patrol. You can't control human behavior at the end of the day. You can try and get in front of actions that somebody might take, but um, in terms of uh, dictating human behavior, it's almost impossible. Uh, it's, it's our job to look at the data and, and try to get ahead of those actions. Uh, if somebody is, is intent on uh, pulling the trigger uh, against somebody else, it's probably going to happen at some point. But um, the, the deployments that we're doing are meant to try to sort of uh, intercede in that uh, in some way or, or, or disrupt uh, what, what might be going on, particularly in terms of retaliation. Now, uh, Tuggle says that they are working with their federal partners, bringing them in on this so that they can share intel. He also says that the public can help them get more boots on the ground by doing something as simple as if you have a non-emergency, not calling 911, because that would require an officer to come out and take a take a report which could take 30 minutes. You can call 911 and they could take that, that call, that report over the phone, or you could do it online and that will free up other officers to be on patrol going after some of this criminal activity. Reporting live from police headquarters, Lisa Robinson, WBAL TV 11 News. Just file your police reports online. <laughs> Why even call a yeah, cop? Yeah that, yeah, that was one of the strategies. They're like, well, you know, don't call unless you really have to. You know, you can, if it's a minor thing, just fill out the report online. 
don't clog up and you know because every time you call we have to send somebody out there and uh tuggle did that at the a press conference surrounded by his uh, top lieutenants and they're all black yeah well tuggle the the chief is very light-skinned negro yeah he is he is a lighter skinned guy but all, all the guys surrounding him are are very dark charcoal type blue black yep blue gums yeah, <laughs> yeah. In September, 37 people were killed in Baltimore, 17 just last week. Already two have been shot and killed in October. This is the story is three days old. Uh, Tuggle, surrounded by top commanders, said he believed the number of those shootings were targeted. He said police are leveraging federal resources to help determine what shootings may be connected. So we're seeing high violence. Uh, we're... We're seeing city resources strained to the hilt. And I've got one more clip here. Um, this one's a little longer, um, but, but I think it really it, it hits home a lot of key points. Um, it's, uh, it's from uh, uh, WBAL Radio. Um, the clip is, uh, I believe it was at the Brian, I forget the guy's last name. Uh, yeah. He's got a talk show there in Baltimore. And he interviewed one of the... Uh, uh, Baltimore City Council people. And if you want to play that 17 killed in one week in Baltimore clip. Here we go. Well, how about Baltimore, huh? I mean, we never stop. We never stop when it comes to murders. Just a couple of uh, weeks ago, we had the FBI say we're number one of the nation when it comes to murders per capita. Number one when it comes to big cities. It wasn't even close um, where we are. And just when we thought things might be turning around a little bit, we come in with a September to remember. 37 people killed in the month of September in Baltimore. And this past week, one week, 17 people killed. It's unbelievable. We are now on pace to have over 300 murders again. The number I have, I've calculated it out to, uh, we're on pace for 311 by the end of the year. And not only that, but there were 37 people killed in September there were 64 people shot. 64 people shot. Not killed, just shot and wounded in Baltimore in the month of September. So that's where we are. The mayor was in Fells Point the other night having another you know, uh, get-together, talking to people in the community about what to do. The police commissioner has said no leave for officers for the next couple of days. And he's also promising to put more officers on the street. So we talked with Councilman Brandon Scott about it this morning about what exactly is going wrong in Baltimore, how it can change, and where we need to go from here. Councilman Brandon Scott earlier this morning on WBAL. Well, as you remember the last time I was on the show, I cautioned uh, folks who said, that, oh, yeah, crime is down from, from last year, and said, well, well, we have to take that as a positive. We also have to remember that 2017 is the worst year ever, so we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to your worst year ever. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, you know, an NFL coach is going to compare their team from being 0 and 16 and be happy because they go to 1 and 15? We should be looking at 2014 as the baseline anyway. So, with that, if you look at that, we were always in a dangerous position. I think that when you have a weekend like this, and when you have a weekend where some of these things aren't connected, you, what you see is that this is what happens when uh, uh, you have don't have the resources on the street that you need. As you know, I'm going to continue to say one of the biggest uh, things that can be done immediately is to finally 
for having the administration negotiate a new contract uh, with the police union that will allow the old contract and the old schedule uh, that is that is severely understaffed to go by the wayside. That's something that needs to happen so that the commissioner isn't having to suspend leave and force people to work and that we can actually have our commanders uh, uh, fill a schedule based on what they need and not be mandated to do it in a certain way. Well, the mayor says the plan is working, and she pointed to the Baltimore Sun editorial from a couple of days ago. This was before we saw you know, 17 right. people the killed plan, in a week. The plan is working. The plan is working only if you're comparing to the worst year ever. So when you, if you're looking at the city at its worst, uh, uh, I don't, I don't disagree that crime is down from 2017. But again, my disagreement is is that we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to 2017 because that's the worst year that we've ever had. You don't, you don't look at yourself or compare yourself at your worst. You compare yourself at your best. So. You know, you've you've said so many people that are that that are out there, and it's ne- never easy to figure out why, how, how to fix this thing. But you know, are, are 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 we struggling to find police officers? Because I hear that all the time too that we don't have enough police officers on the streets. And if we're if we're struggling well, yeah, to find not, police officers, why are we struggling to find them? Well, I think it's not just here. That's a a, a nationwide thing right now. But also, I think because what's more critically important. It's not just the amount of people that, that are being hired. Again, it's that we have a lot of officers, a lot of bodies who are not uh, one. One of my biggest thing is we were told, for example, the council asked, can we put all officers on the street that can be on the street? Or can we put civilians in positions in, in administration that can be filled by civilians? We were, prim- we were told that they had identified 100 or 200 of those positions over a year ago, and that still hasn't happened. That can be done. A new contract can be negotiated so that we can uh, have a schedule that meets the amount of officers that we actually have mm-hmm. versus what they thought we were going to have way back in, in, 20, in 2013 when, when Commissioner Bastard did schedule so that we can allocate resources in a different way. I think that that's critically important. Those are immediate things that you, because you can't, you don't have what you don't have. But when you're forced to schedule uh, your shifts for numbers that you don't have and, quite frankly, that you're never going to have, then it puts you in a position where you're consistently drafting officers. That's unsafe for them. But also I think that what's critical is, again, we have to reduce the call volume. When you have this, this few officers, you have to have them focus on the emergencies and other things, and that's why you've seen myself and then the police department push for more use of telephone reporting for stuff that is not an emergency situation, more use of online reporting. And this is why they're currently recruiting for auxiliary officers so that we can use those kind of resources and have our actual sworn duty police officers focusing out on people who are committing crimes and trying to prevent them. All right, we're talking with Councilman Brandon Scott. Last question before I let you go. I've heard rumors that the spy plane may be coming back. Have you heard of that? <laughs> Well, if it's up to me, well, one, we the rumors are just just that uh, we I've been asked by the council president to have a hearing for it. You, as you know, the city council doesn't have the authority to tell the police to do anything. Mm-hmm. Only the general assembly and the mayor can do that. I personally think that it's a waste of money. If I told you that, what if I told you that this plane was up for 100 homicides when we originally had it? They were only able to use it. In five instances 
uh, only one of them resulted in, in a gun conviction. So if I told you that you would go five from 100 with this thing and it's going to cost you a million dollars or $2 million eventually, most people in the business would say, well, no, it's not worth the investment. But Would you even uh, know so, if it was up? No, I mean, that, and that's without talking about all of the, the – uh, the, it's not up yet. We would know. Okay. It's grounded right now. Right. And that's not that, that doesn't even get to the, all those concerns. But it, it simply didn't even have the impact that we thought it would, that they thought it would have when they secretly had it up. All right. We'll leave it there. It's always good to have you on. Appreciate you coming to the show, Councilman. All right. Thank you, sir. He's Councilman Brandon Scott here on WBAL News Radio 1090. Okay. Yeah, so that was uh, that was an interesting uh, exchange there. Um, you know, s- some of the key takeaways were that um, th- that I thought was uh, the city councilman, even though he's black, uh, basically is saying that uh, there's just not enough resources to fight all this crime in a black city, and that the even though 2017 saw a dip in or 2018 has seen you know somewhat of a dip in murder. He's like, uh, 2017 was the worst year on record. And so just saying we're down a little bit from that really isn't saying much. Um, he's like, well, you should say 2014 is what we should compare ourselves to. But, you know, that still isn't good by any sort of civilized um, standard. And, and the other point is the, the police there are working without a contract. So this is what happens when, when you have a large percentage of your population is being black uh, and again they can't produce anything each black person costs the federal treasury ten thousand dollars a year they take more out than they put into the system so in that scenario you don't have the resources to even pay the zookeepers anymore and and that's why they're looking for auxiliary cops <laughs> yes they, yeah they we need to leverage federal resources, you know. I.e., the city can't; it can't function. Well, well, if I know black cops, they'll they'll work for nothing because that badge in their gun, they'll just go take what they want off everybody else. <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of like that movie. Uh, what was that with Denzel Washington? Uh, Training Day. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't see it. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was a vice cop, but basically he was running his own his own deal. Right. That's how they. That's what they all aspire to. I've seen it up front and and personal. Right. That that's to me. That's what they all aspire to to run their own deal, to get their own racket going, so that they could capitalize on on their um on their badge and their gun, which are a license to steal, usually from other blacks. Well, yeah, I mean, in Baltimore, who's left to steal from, you know? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, <laughs> your daughter gets raped and you file a report on the Internet, and, and it, I, I mean, it goes into the crime statistics, right? But nothing else ever comes of it. Nothing else is ever going to come of it. Nobody's going to get caught. No, I, I mean, in, in Chicago, they're solving about 14%. They have a 14% clearance rate on murders. You know, so what is the, you know... What are the rape? Uh, how many of those cases are getting solved? They don't. They probably don't even care about those. Oh, nobody's dead. All right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ain't no thing. They minimally care about the, about the murders, but they can't solve all of them, <laughs> or even anywhere close. It ain't no big thing. <laughs> no. So, the 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 overall takeaway on on this stuff is is that okay? So, 
we, we have this huge population. Uh, there's a lot of angst. And eventually, the they're all on some form of assistance or other. Eventually, the EBT cards are going to get cut off. There just isn't going to be any more money to... You know, to, to refill the EBT cards with, then what's going to happen? Yeah, right. They're going to explode out of those cities, and whites in the surrounding neighborhoods and 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 suburbs better have guns. Yep, and that's why we see this big Jewish push to get rid of the guns from white people. That's why they're going after the Second Amendment. No doubt. No doubt. And and I was wrong before. I apologize. I was wrong before on, on, on Soweto and South Africa's electric utility. That 4 billion rand number was about 3 years old. It's 15 billion rand today. Oh, wow. And and last year, the, the South African electric utility sells its electricity to Zimbabwe, which would probably be on, on candles without it. And Zimbabwe is not paying them either. <laughs> So. Yeah, yeah, they're not selling anything to Zimbabwe, you know, because there's no payment coming back. Yeah, so so this is what happens when blacks are in charge and when blacks are the consumers, that they don't pay their bills, and uh, if the South African government doesn't pay them for them, eventually they won't be able to pay their that their other providers, that their raw materials provider, they won't be able to build new infrastructure, that they won't be able to pay their employees, and the lights will go out in South Africa. Sooner or later, it has to happen, right? Yeah, I mean, they can't maintain the infrastructure. I mean, in Flint, Michigan, there's no water. Uh, um, the, the drinking water is is undrinkable because um, the blacks run the, the water purification plant, so... There's no there's no clean water. Um, eventually, you're going to start seeing just major infrastructure just fail. You know, there's going to be that sort of thing that's happening in Soweto. It's going to happen in Baltimore. It's going to happen in Detroit. It's going to happen in East St. Louis. There's going to just be. I think. I think we're going to. The trend is going to be that eventually the, the grid is going to start going down in some of these places, and it's not going to come back up. Everyone's like, is it going to be an EMP or is it going to be this? Is it going to be Putin? No, it's just going to be that civilization is just going to crumble because these blacks cannot maintain it. Yeah, right. Well, I'm sure that the suburbs and all the surrounding white, adjoining white areas are probably paying for the electricity in most cities. The, the business districts and the suburbs, because I'm sure yeah. that none of these, that these beasts are paying their electric bills. They don't pay their bills. Yeah, so I guess, you know, kind of one final uh, point to hit on, um, you know, when we're seeing this here in Austin, Texas, is that, uh, you know, in order to maintain the, the major city, okay, so we've had a lot of white people leave, and we've seen the, the tax base kind of uh, deteriorate in a lot of, a lot of these major cities. Well, one strategy to kind of lure people back is, you know, gentrification, you know, lure whitey back with uh, new development, offices, condos, retail, get them to move back into the inner city if you can, you know, if they, you know, Detroit has a thing where I think if you buy a house in the downtown area, you know, after so many years, they'll waive your mortgage if you work there and they're trying to lure white people back in to, to prop up the system. Um, you know, maybe this works for a while, but 
like like in you know like Baltimore or East St. Louis, I don't see how you're gonna do a gentrification project to lure anybody back. Um, you know, here in Austin, that's going on. Um, it's still viable because there's still enough white people here to pull it off. Um, but some of these other cities, they're not going to be able to regentrify. The, the thing is just going to fall apart. Well, we wait for the day. That's what we're waiting for. We want it to happen. <laughs> I want to <laughs> well, see yeah, Baltimore I mean, just yeah, implode. I mean, like, like we said before, if, if you or I could push a button and pull the plug on this system, we'd do it. But you know, we don't have that ability. All we can do is... Um, we can observe what's going on around us and we can read, read scripture and we can just kind of say, well, this, it looks like where we're at on the roadmap, basically. I have an article here about Chicago, right? And it says, you know, talking about the downside of the Chicago economy, we know the impacts of this. Crime is most certainly one. Crime flourishes in area where poverty is concentrated. And, and that's just a lie. I mean, the poorest state... In, in in east of the Mississippi is probably West Virginia and and it's almost all white. It's probably at least ninety, ninety five percent white and most of its people are in poverty according to government standards or, or at least a great number of them. And there is no such crime. That they're not all killing each other in West Virginia. Yeah, I was gonna say, do we have uh, Appalachian white people shooting each other dead at a at a massive clip? Well, well, right, and most of Appalachia as a whole, from from North Alabama, North Georgia, all all the way to Pennsylvania, are is white and poor, and and they're not kill, killing each other outside of the cities where the Negroes are concentrated. It, it's incredible how how they make these statements, these blanket statements, but ignore. All of the whites, more whites in this country are in poverty than the total number, according to the census figures, of blacks. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that just speaks to the narrative uh, that people, white people are all rich. And it's white privilege that gets them there and white networking right. and this and that. Here's but it's a, it, it's a lie. Um Rich white people have been selling out poor white people for thousands of years. Exactly, and and that's even a, a biblical problem, right? That's in in the the wealthy people of Samaria are chastised for selling out their poor white brothers and sisters, right? In um, the prophecies of Amos and Hosea. Here's CBS News, September 28th, 2018. This is only a couple of days old. West Virginia poverty gets worse under Trump economy, not better. But they should compare that to the West Virginia crime rate, which is nothing like Chicago or Baltimore. It's not even close. Yeah, because the difference there is the poor white Appalachians all have a higher IQ than even middle-class blacks. So they, they can maintain, even though it's not a great life or whatever, they can maintain that because they have the wherewithal to, to you know, build, you know, you can fix things, you can build with your own two hands, you can hunt, you can fish. You know, whereas blacks are, you know, they, they, they can only really survive on their own in a tropical environment where 
the food is basically plentiful and all you have to do is go pick the low-hanging fruit. Much more difficulty than that and they face you know, massive starvation. Okay, this is the same website. Two statistics from the same website, right? Because West Virginia does have some blacks in, in its larger cities. There are plenty of them there. But overall, the West Virginia violent crime rate is 3.58 per 1,000 residents. That's just under 3.6 per 1,000 residents. And Baltimore's crime rate is 17.95 per 1,000 residents. Well, yeah, it's almost six times higher. While CBS News um, trumpets or announces West Virginia's sorry state of poverty and sorry economy, Baltimore, which probably has a better economy or better economic prospects because of its location and, and its historic position as a large port city and all that, it, it has six times almost the crime as West Virginia. So Yeah, because who lives there? Yeah, it's... It, it's that it's demographics it's not economics demographics is destiny so baltimore has an in total number of crimes baltimore has nearly double the total crimes as the entire state of west virginia i mean it, it's a war zone and um i think i saw a thing today that uh, tijuana had uh, was it 250 murders last month you know, so Mexico is violent. It's a third world, you know, shithole. Um, any place where you have 70, 80, 90% black population, it's a shithole, a violent third world area. And that's what Baltimore and Detroit are, are turning into. So when, you know, when are some of these major cities going to just completely fail? When are, when are the lights going to go out? When does the mail stop getting delivered? I mean, in Detroit already, they basically the police put up a sign that said, you know, you have to enter at your own risk. We have no way to guarantee your safety. Um, it's basically the same thing in Baltimore. Well, well absolutely. And, and soon whites aren't going to go there at all, and, and the entire city is going to crumble. I mean, whites flock to Baltimore now. I know they, they, they go down to the market district to see the ball games to eat in the restaurants and and they usually or or they very frequently frequently get robbed or murdered coming and going because they have to pass through through the rest of the city to get there it it's um <clears throat> eventually whites are going to stop going altogether and and it's going to implode it's just a matter of time when is it going to happen or or are we going to just um sort of dismantle Baltimore, regentrify it with whites, take the black crime problem, the black crime problem, and spread it all over the region. It's hard to spread it all over that region because you have so many um, corrupt areas in that part of the eastern seaboard. Yeah, you have so many towns that are already overrun with blacks, right? Uh, I mean, it's going to spread to the whole region eventually, and the whole region it is going to suffer the same fate. Where are you going to send them to? Alabama? Yeah, right. Or there's going to be a war. Well, well, I, yeah. I mean, the the Virginia, a lot of um, Negroes have already moved 
in in okay, I spent considerable time in Winchester, Virginia, which is about an hour, an hour and a half west of Baltimore and Washington D.C. Back in 1994 and 95, you could not find a Negro in Winchester, Virginia. I mean, you had to turn over rocks to find one. And and lately, I, I started passing through there again in 2012, not having been there in, in 17, 18 years, 17, 16, 17 years. And there were Negroes all over the place. That They've exploded out of those cities and, and into northern Virginia in the last well, in a 17-year period, the last 20 years or so. So it, it's, um, they're going to continue to spread like a cancer. Like they took over Jersey City when, when I was a child. Now they're taking over, that they're already scattered all over the south, and, and they're going, going to be scattered all over the north as well. I mean, the, the parables of Christ, he said that, two people will be on a couch or two men on a couch or two women at a wheel and one will be taken and the other left behind that's basically going to be the distribution by the time we're done there's literally going to be a nigger in every bed I mean we're, we're close to that now and the black population since Lyndon Johnson took office has more than doubled in this country and that's why this country's, that's a large reason why it's going down. Immigration's been the other problem. Right. I mean, I would bet that blacks are severely undercounted in the census. Yeah, I, I, I would tend to agree with that. Um, First, they I disdain hope. it, right? They see the census as a white man's apparatus, and they, they hate it. So they're loath to cooperate with, with any project like that in the first place. Yeah, back in, in when I lived in Minnesota, I knew a lady that was doing, uh, she worked for the census, and part of her job was going around, and you have to knock on doors to count people. Well, they don't answer the door. Uh, you have to kind of guess how many people live there. Yeah. There's no there's no real way to count these people. No, they don't comply with um, regulations or laws or anything like that. No. So yeah, I, I'm I'm convinced that yeah, the, the the black population is way undercounted. Okay, on that note, I, I know you have a schedule, and we're not yep. going to hold you up all night. Thank you okay. for being here, Don. And and um, we'll get to South Africa and and what's going on in Europe. I I pray soon. I promised that last time, and and we took this the, this topic instead. But this really had to be had to be finished. Yeah, you bet. Uh, thanks for having me, and I, I look forward to next month. And yeah, maybe we'll we'll pick it up with South Africa. Thank you, and praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Arise and thresh. We will destroy our enemies. We're just waiting for the heavenly opportunity.